Hey, I'm Kaylee. And I'm Sierra. And this is True Crime and Punishment. Episode 6. Today, Kaylee will be giving us a two-for-one special with the Tylenol murders and the Excedrin murders. That's right. The Tylenol murders and the Excedrin murders took place about seven years apart, but they are intrinsically connected. One is solved and one is not, which might seem a little strange considering that they are connected cases, but that'll make sense by the end of today's episode. But we're going to go ahead and we're going to start off with the Tylenol murders and then we'll lead right into those eccentric murders. The Chicago Tylenol murders, this is just a brief look at this case. Maybe one day we'll do a deep dive into it. But considering that it's unsolved, it's it's mostly speculation. And I'm not comfortable really just speculating on a normal episode. So we're just going to give you the facts here. The Chicago Tylenol murders took place in Chicago, obviously, <laughs> in 1982. Seven people were killed after bottles of Tylenol were tampered with and pills inside the bottles were replaced with new capsules of medication containing cyanide instead of acetaminophen. Mm. The story starts on September 28th when 12-year-old Mary Kellerman had been complaining of a sore throat and was given extra strength Tylenol. She was hospitalized after taking a contaminating pill and collapsing and she would pass away the next day on September 29th. Mm. On September 29th, six more people would take contaminated medication and ultimately succumb to cyanide poisoning. Three of these people, uh, we have 27-year-old Adam Janis. Um, he was a mailman, and he passed away after taking the contaminated Tylenol. Unfortunately, two more members of his family, his brother Stanley Janis and his brother's wife Teresa Janis, who they were 25 and 20 respectively, would also pass away after taking medication from the same bottle. It's reported that the couple had come to Adam's home to gather with the rest of his family following his sudden and tragic death. They also took the medication and also collapsed and ultimately ended up passing away due to cyanide poisoning. <clears throat> After that, 31-year-old Mary McFarland, 35-year-old Paula Prince, and 27-year-old Mary Rayner would all ultimately die from cyanide poisoning. Following an investigation, it would be discovered that all the victims had recently purchased and consumed extra strength Tylenol. Kellerman and Janice both had a bottle from the same lot, specifically lot MC2880. Now the manufacturer of Tylenol is Johnson & Johnson, and they would issue a recall for all Tylenol from that specific lot initially. However, it would be discovered that multiple lots had been tampered with. And so points to, to Johnson & Johnson, they had a good response, a quick response of cutting production and, and advising the public to turn in their bottles and get a refund or to just stop taking it and to stop taking acetaminophen products because they obviously, they took a massive um, hit from this because their company, it's only Tylenol. It's not like this is just random medications. It's these Tylenol medications have been tampered with and people obviously aren't going to trust them, but they had an immediate reaction, an immediate response of concern and um, recalled everything which means it's honestly probably one of the reasons that their company is still around today because of this immediate reaction and not handling things poorly or putting a money first approach. They put a public safety first approach first, which ultimately ended up saving people's lives. Um, unfortunately, the Tylenol murders are completely unsolved. There have been several leads in the case. Um, one man has been arrested in connection to the case and we'll get into him a minute in a little bit, but he ultimately was not found to be responsible for the actual poisonings himself. But usually with things like this, when we see a widespread terroristic kind of attack or something that's meant to stir fear into, into the public, there's someone who's going to come forward and say, I did this and here's why I did it. I did it for this reason. It was very odd 
that no one ever claimed this action, no one ever attempted to profit from this action who would ultimately be proven to be guilty. We do not know who tampered with these medications. but how- However, a man in New York named James Lewis, and remember these murders took place in Chicago, claimed to be responsible for the murders and demanded a million dollars in exchange for stopping killings. However, it was swiftly determined that he was from New York. He had no... He was not in Chicago. There's no reason that it would have been him that this was just an extortion attempt. Mm. He was arrested and charged and served 13 years in prison um, on top of other multi-year sentences for unrelated crimes. So he was ultimately not found culpable, but he did take credit for it. And recently there has been a push, I believe in January of 2023, there was more DNA evidence they were trying to link to him um, because he did confess to it. Now he is saying that he did not do this he just wanted to use the deaths of seven people to gain money which mm. that's awful right the the punishment did definitely get the crime without one prison time several things changed because of these tylenol murders one thing that happened was in 1983 congress passed what was known as the tylenol bill which made it a felony to tamper with consumer products Later on in 1989, uh, the FDA would update their policies to make medication more tamper-proof. So when you buy meds now, you can see that there's that plastic ring that goes around the outside. Um, They have that seal on the inside that you pull off to be able to actually get into the medication. And one thing that's changed that's actually, I think, the most interesting part of this change is the actual pills themselves. It used to be that Tylenol would come in a capsule. And a capsule is two pieces of, usually it's some sort of gelatin or a substance that can break down, formed into a pill shape that can be put together. Powder can be put inside. You put the two ends together, and there you have a pill. If you get prescription medication, it'll oftentimes look like this, where you can kind of pull that pill apart. If you've ever had a pill break and there's powder everywhere, it's because, you know, the capsule has broken. Nowadays, Tylenol and acetaminophen, and which is a generic form of Tylenol, and then ibuprofen and things like that, they don't come in capsules anymore. They come in a hard-packed pill which can be broken, but it's not a powder. There's nothing that you can put into it. So to replicate a pill, like a Tylenol pill, you would have to try a lot harder. You'd have to compact a poison into a disc. You'd have to coat it with some sort of gel. You'd have to put um, specific numbers that the company uses. It's not impossible to impersonate Tylenol, but it is much harder because now you have to make a different pill. You can't just fill random capsules with powder. You can't just um, go into stores, take bottles, empty them out and put them in and no, one, no, no one's any the wiser. You'd have to replace that seal. You'd have to replace multiple seals and it would just be much more difficult. So a good thing didn't come out of this, which unfortunately that's a theme. Something terrible has to happen before something good can come in and promote public safety. So. Yeah. Well, they probably never imagined that someone would do that to the medication they were selling. Yeah. Do you remember the, the Bluebell ice cream scandal from a couple of years ago where a teenage girl was going into Walmart, pulling lids off of ice cream and just licking it and putting it back? Yes. It was so yeah. gross. <laughs> I think that's a crime <laughs> because you're tampering <laughs> with a consumer product. And this is why it's a crime because of these murders. So, oh, interesting. The Tylenol to Bluebell ice cream pipeline, I guess. Um, yeah. So we, we try to think the best of people. We don't think someone's going to go in and replace a bunch of Tylenol capsules for people who already, they're taking Tylenol because they don't feel good. And you're going to poison them with cyanide for no reason. No one's ever claimed this action beyond James Lewis, who was ultimately proven to be a liar and an extortionist. So it was just, it was a random act of violence. And the city of Chicago was shaken. 
like I'd be fair to say that the United States was shaken because no one would have thought someone would do something like this. So it, it damaged trust in consumer products. It damaged trust in over-the-counter medications. It's, it's It was just a scary time to take a medication. I can't imagine like wanting to take a, a pain pill after that. I feel like I personally would want to um, stay away from that and just kind of avoid that kind of medication, even if I needed it, because some sick person had decided to do this act of cruelty for no understandable reason. So that is a brief, brief overview of the Tylenol murders from 1982. We're going to jump forward to 1986 now into the Excedrin murders. This is a few years after the Tylenol murders. People have slowly regained trust. There's been a couple of things done in order to improve public safety um, when it comes to taking over-the-counter medication that could potentially be tampered with. So in 1986, 52-year-old Bruce Nickel came home from work with a headache. Um, according to his wife, 42-year-old Stella Nickel, Bruce took four extra-strength Excedrin capsules. And Excedrin is a, it's a migraine medication. I believe it's acetaminophen mixed with caffeine. I'm going to fact-check myself. So Excedrin contains acetaminophen, caffeine, and aspirin. Um, it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, also known as an NSAID, that it helps with pain, inflammation, and swelling. It's typically used as an anti-migraine medication. That's what I've always known it as. My family um, takes that because migraines run in my family. So we always have a bottle of Excedrin, migraine relief, or just Excedrin in our hall closet. So this is <laughs> a little bit terrifying to think about. But according to Stella, he took those four extra strength Excedrin and minutes later collapsed. He was taken to Harborview Medical Center and given treatment, and attempts were made to revive him. Unfortunately, these attempts ultimately failed, and Bruce Nickel was pronounced dead. Mm. Medical officials initially ruled his death to be of natural causes. Specifically, emphysema was blamed. So, according to Lung.org, which is my new favorite website domain <laughs> name, <laughs> emphysema develops over time and involves the gradual damage of lung tissue specifically the destruction of the alveoli, or tiny air sacs, within the lungs. Gradually, this damage causes the air sacs to rupture and create one big air pocket instead of many small ones. This reduction in the lung surface area tra traps air in the damaged tissue and prevents oxygen from moving through the bloodstream. Additionally, this blockage causes the lungs to slowly overfill and makes breathing increasingly more difficult. Um... This is typical of smokers. It's not caused only by smoking. Sometimes lung infection can cause this to happen, but it makes breathing more difficult and can ultimately lead to death because of lack of oxygenation in the blood. So that's what medical professionals said happened to Bruce. Was he a smoker or anything like that? So I believe so. It was reported that he was a smoker. So this diagnosis made sense. Mm. However, medical professionals would be forced to reconsider this as Bruce's official cause of death because on June 11th, six days after Bruce, 40-year-old Susan Snow, an Auburn bank manager, took two extra-strength Excedrin migraine capsules for an early morning headache. Later, Susan's husband, Paul Webking, took two capsules from this bottle as well for arthritis pain and left the house for work. Around 6.30, the Snow's 15-year-old daughter found Susan collapsed on the floor of her bathroom, unresponsive and with a very, very faint and weak pulse. Mm. 
911 was called and paramedics transported Susan to the same hospital, Harborview Medical Center, but she died later the same day without regaining without regaining consciousness. Paul Webking suffered no ill effects. Really? Yes, despite taking medication from the same bottle, he suffered no ill effects from this medication. Hmm. Now this was odd. Because of Susan's sudden and tragic death, where she'd been fine that morning, just had a headache, an autopsy was performed on Susan because there was no immediate obvious cause of death. Headaches were not uncommon for Susan. She was known to take this medication when she had a headache. It was not a strange morning. Assistant medical examiner Janet Miller, when performing this autopsy, detected the faint smell of bitter almonds. Now that sounds a little odd, like why is she performing an autopsy and she can smell almonds. Well, bitter almond scent is associated with cyanide. Ah. So, this is coming less than five years after those Tylenol murders. There's the obvious scent of cyanide present. Um, and so, more testing was performed to see if she had died of cyanide poisoning, and that ended up being the case. She had died of what was called acute cyanide poisoning. Now, they knew that she'd taken that medication that morning, so they examined the bottle that she had used. Three capsules that remained in the 60-capsule bottle were found to be laced with cyanide in toxic quantities. So not every pill was poisoned, but there were three more within that bottle, and she had taken two. Whoa. So her husband was kind of playing, like, Russian roulette. Exactly. Now, this was, of course, a sensation in Washington because not five years before, Chicago had had a massive, you know, national news cycle about tainted medication. In they did a search for this medication. Another bottle of unpurchased tainted Excedrin medication was found in Kent, Washington, on a store shelf. The manufacturers of Excedrin, which is Bristol Myers, not Johnson and Johnson, this time, they responded as well quickly and said immediate recall. We want all this medication off the shelf. Uh, we want all the extra strength Excedrin products in Seattle, Washington to be recalled in that area. Um, and then a group of drug companies actually came together to say, hey, if you have any information that will lead to the capture of the person who has done this, we have a $300,000 reward for the capture of the person who's who's done this. In response to the public outcry about these excedrin poisonings, Stella Nichol was thinking about it and she said, hey, my husband recently passed away suddenly after taking those four excedrin migraine pills. That's that's suspicious to me now. So she went to police and she said that her husband had recently passed away. Her husband had recently passed away very suddenly. And the morning of his death, he'd taken four extra strength excedrin pills, just like Susan Snow, who had taken two of those pills. So she brought with her her 40-count bottle of Excedrin Extra Strength, and it was in the same lot number as the one that had killed Susan Snow. So in response to this, an autopsy was done on Bruce Nichols, on his remains, and they found that there was cyanide present in his remains as well as, well as in the two bottles of Excedrin that Stella Nichol had in her home at the time of his death. So she had not one, but two bottles of tainted Excedrin in her home. Examination of those contaminated cyanide, pill, cyanide pills also found that there were flecks of an unknown random green substance within those the pills as well. Um, further testing 
showed that this was an algicide, something that you would use in home aquariums. It was unfortunately named algae destroyer. And it was found in these cyanide capsules as well. So these pills have been hit with both cyanide and an algicide. So they were a lethal combination of multiple things. Yikes. I'm glad she wasn't taking any. Yeah. Initially, suspicion was directed um, at the manufacturers of Excedrin that somehow this had happened in the manufacturing process because it all came from one lot. Remember with those Tylenol murders, it was from multiple lots in multiple stores. Both Paul Webking, which was Susan Snow's husband, and Stella Nichol filed lawsuits against Bristol-Myers, the manufacturers of Excedrin, for uh, they filed wrongful death lawsuits. After this, the FDA, FDA um, inspected the Morrisville, North Carolina plant where the lot, which the specific lot number was lot 5H102. So this is the plant where that lot of medication had been created. And so they did um, an inspection of where it had been packaged to see if there were any traces of cyanide at the plant that could say that unsafe manufacturing processes caused this. Or maybe an employee went rogue and decided to start poisoning people. That's what I was wondering. However, they found no traces of cyanide um, and there was no reason to suspect that the plant had anything to do with it. So this was just completely random, and it did look like someone outside of the plant had contaminated these bottles and then placed them back on the shelves for consumers to purchase and ultimately be murdered by. Was this before there were the special seals on pill bottles? This is before they were mandated by the FDA that it had to be done. I believe I saw in one source that Excedrin at that time did have a foil seal and did have a plastic ring around the neck, but not every medication was required to have it. So this is purely speculation on my part. This is not confirmed by anyone who was actually there in 1986. But I would imagine that either it was something that was overlooked because it was not required for every medication. And so it may not have been strange to to have a bottle of non-prescription painkiller without that seal on it. And if you live in a multi-person household, maybe you think somebody else has opened it. Maybe you just didn't catch it. But I do believe that this time Excedrin did have that seal around the neck, at the very okay. least. But that would make sense living in a multi-person household. And like with the one couple, the husband used some and it didn't affect him. So Exactly. So who's to say that was even the first time they'd used this medication? But when it was found that it was not the plant that had been responsible for either intentional or accidental cyanide poisoning, Bristol-Myers made the decision on June 18th to recall all Excedrin capsules in the United States. So they pulled them from the stores. They warned consumers not to take any if they had already bought it. And then a couple of days after that, beyond just Excedrin migraine or Excedrin extra strength, they recalled all of their non-prescription capsule products. Wow. Good for them because that's a lot of money to lose. Exactly. I'm glad they responded that way. I am too because that's a lot. And then on June 24th, after this recall of all of their products, a cyanide-contaminated bottle of extra strength anison was found at the same store where Susan Snow had bought her contaminated Excedrin. What is anison? That is um, aspirin, but it's a brand name aspirin. So anison is aspirin and caffeine, just how – Essentially, Excedrin is acetaminophen and caffeine. It's used for headaches and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just, it's basically aspirin with a fancy name. <laughs> is it from Bristol-Myers as well? No, it's not. It's from um, Prestige Consumer Healthcare. That might have been a bought-in name, but it was not produced by Bristol-Myers. It was just another medication. Interesting. So that kind of rules Bristol-Myers out. <laughs> um So it was found at the same store that Susan Snow had bought her Excedrin from. And then on June 27th, 
Washington State put into effect a 90-day ban of the sale. It was banned to sell non-prescription medication that came in those capsules because of this. So now we've got Excedrin being poisoned from the very source. It's been ruled out. That's not what's happening here. Investigators need to focus their investigation on the people who have now bought the product or people who have been buying the product because it's not the manufacturer. It has to be a consumer at this point. So, of course, they're going to look close to home. They're going to look at Paul Webking, and they're going to look at Stella Nichols. Both of them have filed lawsuits, uh, wrongful death lawsuits against Bristol-Myers. So they have something to gain, um, as unfortunate as that sounds, from the death of their spouses. They were uh, both, Paul and Stella, were given polygraph um, examinations, which polygraphs are kind of, they're not admissible in court, but they are a good basis to determine if someone's lying. Usually from a failed polygraph test, you can kind of open another door to questioning. So even if someone fails a polygraph test, it doesn't mean that they're guilty. Mm. So just keep that in mind. Oh. Uh, Webking did take the polygraph examination, although he did um, in the media claim that it was unjust because he was innocent. However, Nicole refused to take it. She did not want to take it. She declined through her lawyer um, that she had retained for the wrongful death suit, that she did not want to take it as she was too shaken up from the death of her husband to take this exam. So after this, examiners kind of veered away from Paul and started to look more at Stella. Um, Stella, remember, had two bottles of that contaminated Excedrin. Now, in that total recall, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, five bottles of contaminated medication overall were found in the Washington, Seattle, Seattle, Washington area. But Stella had two of them. Now, that is a little odd because investigators thought it was a little bit odd that she would buy two bottles of the same medication at the same time. That didn't quite make sense to them. But to have two of the five poison bottles that were found in entirety, if you bought them off the same shelf, maybe that makes sense. You know, you just... you tragically grabbed two bottles however um stella told investigators that she bought them from two different stores so what is the likelihood of one woman buying two bottles of the five bottles of contaminated excedrin pills in the entire city of seattle not very high i wouldn't say it's very high either and investigators agreed (laughs) so they started to look into that and they discovered some pretty damning circumstantial evidence. Oh. Stella had taken out about $76,000 worth of insurance coverage on her husband's life. Oh. A little bit strange. Um, <laughs> in addition to the life insurance, she had a payout of $100,000 coming if his death was ruled accidental. Mm. Now, remember when Bruce passed away? It was not ruled accidental from an accidental cyanide poisoning. It was ruled as emphysema, which is not an accident. That's right. And it was Stella that went to police and said, my husband died suddenly. And now we have all these Excedrin murders happening. So let's take a second look at him, please. So it's already looking not so great. She also had been known um, before Susan Snow's death. She had kind of pushed back against doctors when they said he died of natural causes. She didn't think that to be the case. Now, had she not bought two contaminated bottles of the same medication from two different places, maybe that is very odd. And she thinks it's very strange that her husband randomly collapsed and she should fight back. However, 
with that insurance money and the two bottles and refusing to take a polygraph, a case is starting to slowly build. Everything is circumstantial, but it's not looking great for Stella. Right. And add to that, if she were to win the lawsuit on top of that life insurance money, like... That's a lot of money that she has potentially coming down the pipe towards herself. You're right. It's looking very, very much like she has motive. So they decided to do not only further research into Stella, but into the pills themselves. The FBI investigation showed that Bruce Nichol, his signature was on two of the insurance policies that she had, but they appeared to be forged. They did not match his other writing. Oh, no. no. Handwriting analysis, again, isn't always the most perfect way, but usually forgeries can be picked out. And it was proven that it looked like two of his signatures on these life insurance policies had been forged. Oh, Now, remember that it wasn't just cyanide in these pills. They also found that algaecide, the algae destroyer. Investigators were able to prove that Stella Nichol had purchased algae destroyer from a local fish store. Did they have any fish? I believe they had an aquarium. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the algaecide was a little bit strange because I don't think that would technically kill humans. It wouldn't be good for them, of (laughs) course. But in the home, they found a container that they speculated that nickel would have had to use to crush cyanide capsules as well as this algicide and she just hadn't washed the container between uses which makes her a terrible fish owner as well um, <laughs> after all this speculation and mounting pressure stella finally consented to the polygraph in november now remember this happened in june we are going all the way out to november so she's had time to prepare herself mentally for this polygraph test She did, but she ultimately failed the polygraph. well. And this caused investigators to focus solely on Stella Nichol. However, they did not have any proof that Stella had purchased cyanide. They could only speculate that this algicide had been mixed in with the cyanide because she used the same container to mix both substances. Ah, gotcha. So they really had no concrete evidence she had done this, even though they were sure and they are done this in order to kill her husband for that insurance money. Killing her husband makes sense, right? Of course, you know, she wants that money. She's connected to this man. I don't believe they've been married for very long before this had happened, despite they're both, you know, in their 40s and 50s. But how would Susan Snow tie into this? How would the five bottles of poison medication tie into this? The answer to that question also lies in why it ties into the Tylenol murders as well. Mm. Stella Nichol desperately needed her husband's death to be ruled as an accident. True. And when it was ruled as emphysema, meaning that it was not an accident, it wasn't of no outside. (gasps) Oh, no. Oh, no. She could remember, five years prior, the Tylenol murders. So what would help her get her husband's death ruled an accident? She's already talked to medical professionals who are staunchly of the opinion that her husband died from emphysema. she knows it was it because she killed him. Oh, no. If other people were to start dying from cyanide poisoning after taking Excedrin migraine medication as her husband had, well, that would prove her husband's death as an accident. She'd have probable cause to get an autopsy on her husband's remains, and therefore she'd be one step closer to getting her insurance money and being able to file a wrongful death lawsuit against Bristol-Myers, the Excedrin Medication Corporation. So all it would take 
was a few more people buying tainted Excedrin. Just like seven people had taken tainted Tylenol five years prior. This is all speculation on the police part, of course, as we don't have solid evidence for this. So we have to go back to the investigation. We're going to introduce a new character into this situation. Stella Nichol had a daughter, not with Bruce Nichol. Her daughter's name was Cynthia Hamilton. In January of 1987, Cynthia Hamilton approached police with information. Apparently, Stella was not secretive about her wish for her husband's death. Cynthia said that she had told her, her mother had told her repeatedly, Bruce was boring, he was sober now, and he wasn't as much fun. She just wanted him dead. She wanted him gone. All, all he wanted to do was stay home and watch TV. He didn't want to go out to bars anymore since he'd gotten sober. Ugh. Which I don't know about you, but I don't think that's reason enough to kill somebody. No, not at all. She even told Cynthia that she had tried to poison Bruce <gasps> previously, but it had failed. She tried to poison him with foxglove. But when that had failed, she looked into other ways that she could kill him. And she found cyanide. Her daughter also claimed that Stella had spoken about what they could do with that insurance money when Bruce was finally dead. Oh my goodness. She said that she looked up that information about cyanide. Um, she also went to the public library. Remember, this, this is 1989. One of the best places to go for the internet. Your public library. <laughs> so um, records from the Auburn Public Library had were subpoenaed. And it showed that Nickel had checked out numerous books about poisons. <laughs> including human poisonings from native and cultivated plants. And deadly harvest. The first book that um, I mentioned, Human Poisonings from native and cultivated plants was marked as overdue in her library records. Oh. <laughs> so she'd borrowed it, but she'd never brought it back. And librarians never forget. <laughs> they found the book in Nichols home and they found, they found other books that she checked out about poisons. And the FBI was able to identify Nichols fingerprints, Stella Nichols fingerprints on pages related to cyanide in multiple works. She checked out from this public library. So things were not looking so good for Stella Nicole. <laughs> On December 9th, 1987, she was officially indicted by a grand jury on five counts of product tampering, one for each bottle of pills she t- uh, allegedly tampered with, including the two bottles that had officially killed Susan Snow and Bruce Nicole. She was arrested the same day and didn't go on trial until April 1988, where she was found guilty of all charges on May 9th after just five days of jury deliberation. Uh, Nichols' legal team tried to claim that there had been, you know, misconduct in the trial, things like jury tampering and just official misconduct they said had occurred. They motioned for a mistrial, and that was ultimately denied. Uh, the courts found that there was no mis- nothing that could be considered tampering with a jury or misconduct within this court, and a mistrial was not given. Stella Nichol was ultimately sent- sentenced to two 90-year terms, um, one for Bruce and one for Susan. And then she also received three 10-year terms for the other product tampering charges. So two 90-year terms and then three charges for those other three bottles that had been tampered with, but no one had taken those medications and been killed by them. Which I do really appreciate the fact that those charges were still levied against her, even though at that point she's got two 90-year sentences. It doesn't really matter. But just acknowledging the risk that those put on the public. Yes. Do you know, in your research, did you find if Cynthia testified at the trial? 
Uh, yes, Cynthia did testify to her. She specifically testified that her mother spoke repeatedly of wanting Bruce Nichol to be dead because you know that all the things I mentioned before. He was sober, he was boring, and she wanted his and she wanted money from his ins- insurance policy that he likely did not even sign. <laughs> Yikes! Yeah, I, if I were a jury member, I would find that pretty compelling since she wasn't Bruce's daughter; she was just Stella's daughter. But she still testified about that. Yeah, because you know. There are a couple of other um, people who have initially testified to police that she would talk often of wanting Bruce dead. Oh. Um, there's a couple. <laughs> there's like a family friend that I didn't mention because I don't believe she testified in okay. court. Um, I believe there was a, according to an ABC News article I found, um, the friend kind of dropped off the face of the planet because she was convinced that Stella had hired someone to, to harm her, to kill her, to keep her from testifying. And she was too scared to testify after that. Mm-hmm. Which I believe that friend also had lived with them at one point and was also going to testify to her buying the medication, which they already knew that she bought the medication. She'd admitted to buying the two bottles. So her testimony wasn't necessarily needed to to convince the jury. So of course, after you know, life sentence, she had some appeals. She was eligible for parole in 2018. However, she was denied parole in 2017. Um, and as of 2022, which is the latest I found on it. Um, she was still in prison. So why was her parole denied? Um, the process of parole, parole specifically, is early release. So she's not filled her sentence and they don't find her to not be a danger to society or they don't find her to be suitably reformed or had, quite frankly have been punished enough to be released into society. Um, I do know that in 2017 she was denied parole because they did not feel that she'd served enough of her 90-year sentence or her other 90-year sentence or her three 10-year sentences on top of that. Um, <laughs> but they also, she's eligible for release in 2040, but she'll be like 96 because I believe her sentences are running concurrently. Like they're oh. running oh, together. Okay. So she's, yeah. Um, but then in April 2019, She's she's old now. She's housed at a really low, it's low security, like a, a minimum security federal prison at this point in California. So she was also petitioning for compassionate release in 2022 because her health is failing. But this was also denied because I believe they don't want her out there because they don't feel that she is not a danger to society or that she's not been incarcerated long enough i mean she killed her husband she killed a random woman and she was willing to kill many more people because for her plan to work she only needed one other person to die but she needed something to happen in order for her to go forward so she's a danger to society on top of just being a money hungry woman. yeah so her appeal has been denied a couple of different times she also claims that her daughter cynthia also believes cynthia goes by cindy you'll find a couple sources where she'll be listed as cindy but her name is cynthia she claims that her daughter um (laughs) sold her out essentially or lied because she wanted that three hundred thousand dollars from the excedrin company bristol myers because remember they were giving that reward um however i think that could potentially you know have some merit as cynthia did get two hundred fifty thousand dollars out of that three hundred thousand dollars but there again there's all that circumstantial evidence on top of her daughter's testimony there's also the testimony of the other woman who eventually did not testify there's more than just her daughter at play right here nickel has continued to claim her innocence but but courts have continued to find her guilty and find her ineligible for parole 
So that is the case of the Tylenol murders and then the Excedrin murders. Now, a couple of the good things we've gotten out of this, of course, have been those regulations with the plastic going around the neck of bottles and security seals tampering, and then, you know, the capsules being changed out as well. But ultimately, we don't know why the Tylenol murders occurred. Unfortunately, there's no other than just public mayhem and murder, but we do know that the Excedrin murders were a copycat murder of the Tylenol murders in order for Stella Nichol to be financially compensated for the death of her husband. Mm, that's really sad. It is, and I would like to applaud the medical companies for their swift response yep. to to pulling their product and being willing to take a hit, which it sounds stupid to say, oh, well, they did the right thing, but they, they did. And I mean, that was really, really important. And it saved people's lives because with Excedrin acting so quickly or Bristol-Meyer acting so quickly, they were able to get three other bottles off of shelves. Or I guess at that point it was two because Stella had two of them. But there were medications on the shelves just waiting for someone to purchase. And it's unfortunate that through these whole cases, um, nine people lost their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very sad. It's interesting. I never knew the story behind the regulations that we have for those pill bottles. So I'm glad we have those today. Although obviously it's very sad. The reasons that we have them are very sad. It's, it's always whenever you think of something that's so commonplace nowadays, something as simple as I would never buy medication that didn't have a safety seal on it. That if I bought a bottle of cold meds and the safety seal was damaged, I'd bring that back immediately. And it's crazy that some things like this had to happen for it to happen. But I'm I'm glad that it's a thing. Yeah, so people are crazy. And I really, really hope that the Tylenol murders are solved one day just because that's got to be such a question. I mean, near half the victims were from one family. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's wild and it's crazy what people will do to gain financial, just to gain money. That's it's crazy. This has been the case of the Chicago Tylenol murders and the Seattle Excedrin murders. Next week, Sierra is going to be talking about Dorothea Puente, and that is going to be a doozy and a half. Yes, it's definitely one of those cases where you can't judge a book by its cover because, in my personal opinion, she does not really look like someone that you would picture committing murder. So join us next week to hear about the exploits of Dorothea Puente. All right. Well, we will see you next week. Until then, be aware. Take care. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.